welcome. This is the 206 podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make them. My name is Mark Morin and I am speaking with Alice Gu, director of an award-winning documentary called The Donut King. Alice, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Now, I have to say, this documentary gave me such a craving for donuts and I almost feel like there should have been a warning at the beginning of the movie. Was there any thought of adding that in? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think about that at all, but it has been mentioned a couple of times. <laughs> so I feel like that is something that we will need to do from now on out. That being said, my first question for you is how many donuts did you eat while making the movie? You know what? I have to say, I'm pretty disciplined on the sweets. I am a stereotypical, <laughs> California West Side girl who is nice. pretty disciplined about the sweets. That said, I did eat plenty of donuts. <laughs> and I'll tell you about the one really quickly that I could not resist. The fresh buttermilk bar, you know, straight out of the fryer and hot glaze. It was offered to me while we were filming and I said, you know, I'm good, you know, being very disciplined. I'm, I'm good. And she said, well, you know, I can like cut it or quarter it. You don't have to eat the whole thing. I said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, you know, and I took a quarter and it was an out of body experience. Oh, wow. And I ended up eating all four quarters. So I ate, I ate the entire thing. Although <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I'm good. You know, was, that's my weakness. Wow. Yeah, especially when they're fresh like that, it's so hard to resist. So, you know, that's a, I'm glad you're able to get a bit of an indulgence in there. But I could talk to you about donuts all day now that you bring that up. We definitely want to talk about the movie, the documentary. So seriously, though, I really enjoyed the documentary. And especially because it was so much more than just a story about the man who built the donut empire. You talk about Cambodia, where Ted Noy is from, the Khmer Rouge, which is why he fled to America in the first place, and also the impact that America, along with the people and culture, had on this group of refugees as they tried to adapt and survive. What was it that made you want to tell this story? And was your initial idea as deep and involved as what I ended up seeing on the screen? Good questions. So no, you know, when I, my what first drew me to the story was Ted himself. You know, this, this guy is unlike anybody I've ever met before. His story itself is Shakespearean. There are, there are bits that I couldn't include in 90 minutes in the movie. I touch on the love story a little bit between him and Sugantini, the girl of his dreams from the well-established family in Cambodia. What I couldn't get into time-wise was how he fell for her, their forbidden love, her father threatening to kill him. And her father said, okay, in exchange for not killing you, you're going to have to tell Sugantini that you've never loved her, that you're no good, um, you are going away, you love many girls, you're a, you're, you know, you're a dog, basically. And that was the deal for not killing him. And, and we're gonna hide behind the curtain and we're gonna make sure that you say all these things. So you, she's, you're gonna come into like the living room and we're gonna be hiding to make sure that you go through with it. And she came down and he told her, he said, you know, it's Sugantini, I'm no good, I've never loved you. And he said he saw her heart breaking before his very eyes and he couldn't take it anymore. And he came with a dagger and he pulled out a dagger and he stabbed himself three times and started bleeding out. And he went to the hospital and then she took pills because she thought he was dead. But it was complete Romeo and Juliet drama. So of course, all of this kind of story, I was instantly drawn into his story. In doing just a biopic alone, if it was just straight biopic, it would have been quite the journey already. <laughs> right. But in discovery, discovering, of course, you know, I only had kind of casual knowledge. Uh, you know, of course, I'd heard of the Khmer Rouge. I knew the killing fields. You know, I knew Pol Pot was a bad guy. 
just kind of like a casual observer's perspective, you know, on, on Cambodia at that time. But digging in deeper and why the region was destabilized, largely due to U.S. policy at the time, then going a bit, you know, deeper into U.S. history and discovering that it was a Republican president who issued the executive order and, in essence, saved the lives of so many of these refugees. You know, that was, God, how could we not include that? <laughs> you know, that was, right. that was so different from what you tradition what you think of politics in 2020 and what was really really standing out for me was this discovery of this younger generation you know which during prep and filming you know I called donut 2.0 <laughs> they're like the donut princesses this is Adam Vaughn who takes over DKs these are the kids who are who were born and raised here and educated and have marketing degrees and communications degrees. And for the most part, these kids do end up going to work for Facebook and Apple and become doctors uh, because that's the whole point, right? This older generation, they work so hard because mm -hmm. they don't want their kids to have the same kind of manual labor jobs right. they have to do. But it's so it's entrenched so deeply. You know, some of these kids, they just can't quite let it go or the thought of their parents retiring and the shop not existing anymore. But they're bringing, which I feel is very American, that new knowledge and this younger generation is social media savvy. They know how to brand their old, their parents' old donut shop into something that's <laughs> Instagrammable. And I thought, what could be a better, what could be more American than that? You know, this, this younger generation of immigrants who are, you know, born and raised Americans with, you know, a, a deep history from Cambodia, from their parents. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things that was really inspiring to me because, you know, you go through the journey of Ted Noy and his life and kind of the rise and fall, you know, classic story. And then it, you could have just left it at that and said, okay, there's his life. But then you do see in the documentary, the kids and the grandkids and, you know, stepping back in. And just like you said, it's like they didn't want to have anything to do with it, but then they felt I need to keep this going. And then once they got back into it, they just totally fell in love. And, you know, with the, I've, I've looked at some of the websites and pages and social media of a few of these, right? Like, I think it was uh, DK Donuts is one of yep. the ones that I looked at. And yeah, it's, just, it's phenomenal what they're doing with, with social media and just being active out there. So that, that was a really, really great transition into, into closing out the story of like, here's what's happening now and, and here's the future. And you know that, that leads me to my next question, which it seemed like you had a lot of cooperation from the families and then really great access to the shops themselves. So tell me about your interviews with the family members and then also filming in the shops with all those donuts uh, surrounding you like we talked about. Um, access to the family that would, you know, I now feel like I have lifelong friends, you know, with the Noi and extended family, but that wasn't the case in the beginning. You know, this is uh, Cambodians and I just say Asians culturally and traditionally are not terribly, they don't really invite you in your life and, and say, sure, you know, my life's an open book and you can show everything you want on, on TV. They're really pretty put your head down, keep a low profile, keep private. And particularly Ted's story that has so much, you know, it's it's a little complicated. I mean, sure, he is the Donut King too. Um, and maybe for some of your listeners who haven't watched already, you know, it's not only sprinkles and sugar and <laughs> and frosting. There is There are some peaks and valleys to the story. You know, that's not easy for people to be so forthcoming about. But I... Gosh, you know, I was that squeaky wheel 
that would not go away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, bless them because they're like, no, we don't really want to talk. And like two weeks later, I'm like, you want to talk now? And they're like, no, 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 go away. We still, <laughs> we still don't want to talk. And like two and a half months later, how about now? <laughs> oh God, you're still there. We thought we we might be gone by now. So oh. finally, it's like okay, okay. You, it, it takes a lot of convincing, and I think finally they're like, oh, she's still around. Okay. Um, so slowly but surely, but it, it was over months and months and months uh, of getting the family to to feel open enough to talk with me. Now, being in the shops, it seemed like from what I saw, like they were open for business while you were in there doing the filming. Like, was there a lot of you know logistical things that you had to coordinate to, to make that type of stuff happen? You know, I will say, first of all, you know, we went to, we filmed at Rose Cafe and Donuts mm -hmm. in San Clemente, California. And again, kind of like the stereotypical California girl and like my, you know, like the crew were like, who eats donuts? How busy are donut shops these days? This place was non-stop. <laughs> I mean, it was a steady stream of customers. And we were like, oh my God, you know, we're like, who eats donuts? Everybody eats donuts. The health freaks, they eat donuts. The skinny girls, they have <laughs> cheat days. The bodybuilders, they have cheat days. Celebrities, bus drivers, everybody eats donuts. And that is certainly the truth. But you know, I feel like the donut shop is such a happy place. I mean, it really is. You know, people would see a camera crew in there and they're like, these are the best. Like they all, they automatically want to volunteer the information because oh, wow. I feel like the owners of these shops have established such deep roots and ties with the community. Everybody, it's really neighborhoody. You know, they all, they know each other's names or they've seen the kids grow up there or the average American eats three donuts a month. You know, it was it was really welcoming. At the same time, at the beginning, you know, when they didn't quite know who I was or what to expect, I'm like, okay, can we film the shop? All right, you have to be there at four in the morning. Four in the morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you want the donuts, that's when we bake. Oh right. And they're like, we're not going to do a special setup just for you. You you have to come when we bake. So there was some. Um, odd hours for us <laughs> but uh, it was it was just truly a wonderful experience oh that's amazing especially as you now from what i understand this is your first feature film right this is my first feature film yeah so you're i would imagine there's a lot of trial and error and learning as you go uh, was there any major things where you're like oh my gosh i had no idea that this would happen or that this would need to be prepared for well <laughs> Our very first trip to Cambodia, you know, we didn't have, it was self-funded. And a ticket from LAX to Cambodia in economy was almost $2,900. And I was gonna find myself and my producer, Jose. $2,900, I'm like, just in plane tickets, it's gonna be almost $6,000. Like, We're gonna have like nothing left. And then I looked, cause I traveled a lot. I was like, okay, I can buy a ticket to Hong Kong for 1100 and then I can buy, I can piecemeal it. Then I can make a ticket on like a little connecting airline for 300. <laughs> that ends up being like 1400 with a really, really, really tight connection. So what I didn't know is like, okay, we're going to take the camera. We're going to hand carry everything. We're going to travel super light. It's a hot country. All you need is a like, flip flops, <laughs> you know, so we carried everything in hand carry and that tight connection, our flight out of LX was delayed. Oh no. And then we get to Hong Kong airport. We arrive in like gate four 
and our connection gate is at gate 502. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we ran and I'm gonna I'm like we're really fit, but like we probably ran two miles in the airport, full full sprint. Wow. When we arrived at gate five oh two and the plane left. We lost our connection. Oh no. So I don't know if this is a complete just rookie mistake. It was just something we there was no other option at the time. Mm. Like we knew we had so little time. We didn't want like a six hour layover. We ended up having the six hour layover anyway because we missed that tight connection. But why will, we will never forget, like we showed up at the gate drenched and the air guy, they're like, we just closed the door. I'm like, you can't, you can't. I'm like, uh. yes. And he was like, he's like, well, there was another passenger from your flight who made the flight, who made it, but we saw that he was coming. So we held the plane for him. We didn't know oh. you were coming because we didn't register as a connecting flight. So they didn't hold it for us. That guy was sitting in business class, that, which meant he got off the plane a little earlier than us. It was the mere seconds. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was really fun, I have to say, because, you know, I shot this myself. I have a background in cinematography. I got a grant from Ari, so I was able to shoot on the camera oh, really? frames. And out of necessity, it had to be very DIY. It was like going back to basics. It was film school. We had to do it all ourselves. We had to light it ourselves. We had to, I had to AC my own camera, build my own, you know, it, <laughs> it's actually, it's cool. Like you're, you're back in the trenches. You're, it's like real, true movie making. Speaking of learning experiences, you know, this year as a whole has been kind of a learning experience and you putting your first feature film out there and you were making the rounds, I guess, virtually at a bunch of film festivals this year. So, and I know you took home several awards for the documentary, including a special jury award from South by Southwest and also an emerging director award from the Asian American International Film Festival. And yet this year must have also been difficult, you know, due to the pandemic and protests and all the political stuff. Tell me about your experience releasing this film during what's, you know, kind of the strangest and craziest year of our lifetime, really. Of our lifetime. Yeah, I so I have had the fortune of going to Sundance before. I as a cinematographer, mm -hmm. I've shot films that have been in Sundance. I've attended Toronto Film Festival before. And gosh, there's nothing like being at one of these film festivals. Right. They are so fun. The energy, the people you meet, it's so inspiring. You meet these new filmmakers, like you get all these great ideas and it's just incredibly fun and incredibly exciting. You know, it's very exciting to go as a DP with a film in Sundance, but oh God, I can't imagine what it would feel like to go to a film with your own movie. And I'd actually, you know, we were supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. I'd never been to South by Southwest. I just hear from everything like, oh my God, it's so much fun. <laughs> Unbelievable, you're gonna have the best time. You know, you just, <laughs> you hear all that. And oh my God, I mean, I have to say it, that the day we found out it was canceled, and of course this was, South by was like, kind of the first domino to fall right. of the large events. And we had no idea what the severity of this pandemic was going to be at that time. You know, I just were going through the emotions. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, for a stupid virus? Are you kidding? <laughs> at the time, you know, if Sundance had just wrapped and it was like, you felt like, oh, you just got to hunker down for a couple weeks. So like, Tribe you thought Tribeca was going to go on as planned. And we were just like the ones. It was gut-wrenching. We didn't know what to do. But of course, as the weeks went on, there was no Tribeca, there was no Telluride, there was no can. <laughs> and having to take it virtual, 
I guess I would say like I, you know, you kind of go into a little bit of like, all right, well, so we do it virtual and this is how it is. But we never celebrated, um, you know, I, we, it was such a mad dash to finish the film. I never got to celebrate with the crew who worked so hard and tirelessly around the clock to make our deadline for South by Southwest. And I have to say, I think it was um, Bentonville. So South by Southwest was canceled, Sun Valley was canceled, and then we had Bentonville. And Bentonville went full virtual. And they worked really hard to pivot to a virtual festival. And we were able to meet filmmakers. So having like these kind of virtual happy hours and meeting people. And that's when I really got that like feeling of, oh God, I wish I was meeting these people in real life. You know, so like a kid from like Nairobi, somebody with their first film from like Shenzhen, China. It's that exciting buzz and everyone is just, it's infectious, that feeling of, of excitement. So I have to say, I when I think about it, yeah, I, I do really miss what could have been. Yeah, I've, I've covered the Seattle Film Festivals for several years now, and I know exactly what you mean. Just the way people gather and just the camaraderie, and everybody is so excited to be in the theater to, to see these movies that nobody knows about. So yeah, it's, I, I can only imagine what it's like as a director having a movie out there to, to miss that. So hopefully we'll be able to get back to that type of film festival experience soon. Now, all of that being said about 2020, what could you point to and say is the best thing about this year? I think that one of the best things of this year has still been so many new friends that I've made who I've never met in the flesh. I would say these are some friends from South by Southwest or there are a few filmmakers that we've been kind of on the same circuit and we've been at the same festival three or four times, which in real life, we would be seeing each other three or four times, you know, in all different cities. But nonetheless, we're now friends, you know, and especially like the class of 2020 at South by Southwest. It's doing those beginning weeks when, I don't know, I feel like nobody else at the time could really understand what we were feeling and going through except for ourselves. And I feel like for that, we have all been so supportive of each other. We've been really supportive of films doing well. It's so hard to have your film have a life I feel like, you know, to stay visible and to stay in the conversation. And when other films from South by Southwest, you know, I'd say, for example, Finding Ying Ying is one that we've been at several festivals and they've won a bunch of awards too. You know, it's always like, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. And I'm genuinely happy for other filmmakers' success to stay in the conversation. That's a really great insight. Thank you for bringing that up. Who would you say is your biggest influence as a filmmaker? Oh, wow. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there are so many. Uh, I would say learning under, as far as cinematography, I I got to assist under the great uh, rest in peace, Harris Savitas. So for listeners who may not be familiar, you know, he shot Elephant, he shot Zodiac. I worked with him in Gus Van Zandt's film, Jerry. That was a very experimental film. But Harris's craft, his talent, his restraint, I mean, his work is just, his his images are just, I'm overcome with emotion just thinking about the images that he created. However, even more than that was the kind of person that Harris was. Mm. So I have been fortunate enough to work with all kinds of people, um, people who I really respect 
technically and creatively and then I work with them and they're like the meanest person I've ever met in my life oh no um, I won't name names <laughs> I have met some of like astoundingly mean people and being able to compare Harris who I consider like a Jedi <laughs> that was at a very very early age that I learned what kind of a person I wanted to be on set mm. because for Harris and his graciousness I would do anything for him I would do anything still to this day I would do anything for Harris so I would say one that was in attitude and visually he was such an inspiration that's a great mentor to have or role model oh my god he was incredible uh and as far as in documentary filmmaking one of my greatest okay I've had the pleasure of working with two very different directors I would say one was Werner Herzog oh wow who you know, I, I feel at times yeah, pretty con you know, confident in my ability and confident in myself. And I feel like I can converse with most people pretty naturally. Werner, I was so intimidated. Not that he was himself is so intimidating because he's very warm and a very lovely, very, very lovely person. But he was certainly a person I'm like, you're completely out of my league. Like, you, you are, and it's like, you know everything and everyone and every detail and technical and creative and art and everything. I was like, I'm not going to say much for fear of sounding so stupid because we're completely out of my league. And then kind of the opposite is a director, Stacy Peralta, I worked with on several projects. And Stacy, the way that he is able to connect with, uh, you know, whoever he's interviewing, his genuine warmth and curiosity, the way he thought about crafting story and you know getting people to be comfortable was simply extraordinary. And it was such a privilege to be able to work alongside him and God, you know, be able to uh, absorb, you know, I was just trying to learn everything when I'm working with these greats in filmmaking. Who inspires you that's not a filmmaker? Oh gosh, who inspires me that is not a filmmaker? A lot of people. A lot of people. Another one, um, rest in peace, um, Kobe Bryant, the Mamba mentality. Right. Um, that was, it was such an inspiration. It was to be your best, the pursuit of excellence. And of course, with Kobe in that Mamba mentality, there is natural talent, but it is a work ethic. It is putting time and training into your craft uh, that I, uh, what a sad year. <laughs> when right. So it's Kobe. I guess it's a lot of athletes. You know, it's another one of the surfer Kelly Slater, who has been, you know, he was the youngest champion to ever win and the oldest champion to ever win. You know, he's mm -hmm. someone who's been at the top of his game for decades. So gosh, I don't know what that says about me. These people who are <laughs> in pursuit of excellence, but it certainly, it pushes me to be better and want to be better all of the examples of you're talking about of people, it sounds like work ethic is the common thread there. Do you feel that's that's something that, that you really take pride in as far as a director is your, your work ethic? I do, I do. And I'll say that you're connecting the dots. It makes sense, you know, because there are some interviews that I've participated in this year who, you know, a question has been, you know, what would you just say to somebody who's starting out? Or, you know, what would you say to someone who wants to do their first film? Or, you know, they, they really want to work in film. And my answer is, do it. Every day. Shoot, it doesn't matter if you have a grant from Aerie, if you don't have a grant from Aerie. We all have iPhones now. We have 
something that like, even if it's crap, you learn what made it crappy. It's practice, it's, it's knowing your craft. And you can have, you can be born with as, as much talent as anybody, but it really is the work you put in. I could talk to you about this type of stuff for probably a couple hours, but we're here to talk about the documentary, so I want to steer back that direction. So along with everything that we've talked about with the film, you know, the documentary also puts a spotlight on small business and family-run businesses and just how important it is to support them just to help them survive. So have you received any feedback from business owners who have watched the movie or, or even the donut shop owners themselves? Yes. So these donuts, you know, there's so many businesses, small businesses this year, have been hurting, whether it's in the food sector or gift shop, or, you know, whatever it is. So many small businesses have been hurting. And there is, I don't know if this is a local or if this is not, there's a little app called Nextdoor. Yeah. And some of the donut shop owners will share screen grabs of top trending posts, you know, in Nextdoor. And I'm, flo I'm completely floored. There was one in Pasadena, California, and it said, Hey, I just saw, hey, next door, I just saw a movie called The Donut King. I had no idea, and we live next to BC Donuts. This is the oh back to This is hard work of immigrants who came and built this country, and we're normally very healthy, but we had to go out the next morning <laughs> and go and support and get donuts. And then the, the threads are like, me too, me too, me too. Oh my God, this is incredible. I'll never go anywhere ever again. We just really want to support this shop. So this has been from BC Donuts, this is from DK's. You know, I feel like the overwhelmingly positive response has been there to support small businesses. Oh, that's amazing. This, just to see that has got to be really gratifying as well for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll go one step further of not necessarily small business, but gratifying and something that I, I wasn't expecting. So when I started to make this film, you know, I told you why I why I was attracted to it and why I wanted to do the film and you know I kind of just went into like push the sleeves up and go into like DIY mode and made the film. What I did not expect and maybe naively was the outreach from Cambodian community and beyond you know and Thai and other people but Cambodians who said I never thought I would ever see a movie about Cambodians ever you know a film that represented our story. We didn't think anybody cared. Wow. One of the artists said, I thought this was my life portrayed. I grew up, this was my first job, and the only job I knew was working in my parents' donut shop. My dad lost two shops to gambling. And I have never, this is a quote, I've never seen a Hollywood movie ever that I ever felt like I could relate to. And this was my story. He's like, I watched it with my wife, who is not Cambodian, and now she feels like she understands me and where I come from and my family so much better. Wow. I mean, that one note like that makes the whole journey worth it. I wasn't expecting it from a Thai person. I got, hey, this is my life. Just sub donut shop for Thai noodle shop. And this is <laughs> story. That is amazing to hear. I'm, I'm so glad you're able to, to get that feedback and have that experience. What's the number one thing you've learned as a human being from making this documentary? Wow, this is a long answer one. Okay. <laughs> Quite all right. The one thing, so, you know, I know this is a podcast, so your viewers can't see me, but I am Chinese American. I am born and raised here in Los Angeles. And I would have to say that growing up and at times, I'm like, I was, especially in high school, at odds with my immigrant parents. Why can't you just be like so-and-so's parents? Why are we so weird and different? 
you know, because you, you just want to fit in and you don't understand why, you know, I'll just say culturally, like the Chinese parents were stricter and they were, they were really tough. I said, oh, you know, like Jessica's parents are so like nice and understanding. And there's things I couldn't really appreciate, you know, and in making this film, Though my family is not Cambodian, we did not own the donut shops, but here is this common story about that parent's generation, that older generation coming here to make a better life for the kids, that they will wear the same clothes for 20 years, but they'll pay for your entire education. They will do everything like you. They, you know, Asian parents aren't necessarily so affectionate and say, I love you all the time, but there was like a meme the other day. This is Chinese mom love. She'll eat the old crusty rice and you get the fresh rice. You know, <laughs> everything that like, they'll take the crappy stuff so that you can get the good stuff so you can have a better life. This is why they left, for my parents, communist China, or why these Cambodians fled the Khmer Rouge to come here to realize the American dream, to be safe. And there was one thing that really, really struck me was when Ted and Christy, they arrived here to America in, uh, on a military plane and it arrived in Camp Pendleton, yeah. California. And it was the first time I had heard of somebody describing that experience, you know, leaving a warm, lush, tropical country where everybody looks like you and everybody speaks the same language and all the smells and everything is familiar. Landing in the middle of the night to autumn in California, it's cold, it's a desert, nobody looks like you. You've never seen mac and cheese before in your life. <laughs> And what, and you have no money and no friends and to have to figure out, figure it out. So a big learning lesson for me, I'm like, God, I haven't had much adversity. Making movies is easy. Like what if somebody was like, Alice, you have two minutes, take what you think you need. You're going to get dropped off in Istanbul. You have no friends and you don't speak Turkish. Figure out a home, figure out how to live, figure out how to work and make money. Like, how do you do that? No, it's a it's a real you know a real appreciation for the grit and the tenacity of the older generation. So again, these were these people, my parents, who I felt at odds with as like a bratty teenager. <laughs> I didn't have an appreciation for the kind of adversity that they had to overcome to come here, so that they could have a bratty teenager. That's an amazing perspective to gain, and that's one of the things that I really appreciated once I was you know, well into the documentary and realizing that this was more than just a film about a guy that made donuts, which is kind of what I thought it was when I sat down to watch it. And then I learned so much and I've got friends who their parents or they themselves have come here from other countries and it's similar type stories. And it's just amazing to see that. And I was really appreciative that you were able to fit so much into the documentary that I feel that people really should see for the exact reasons like you expressed is we don't know what that's like what people went through and it, it's it was very eye-opening to me to to see I think your your best example there was just all of a sudden you're in a new country and there's these foods you have no idea what they are and you don't speak the language it was just mind-boggling to me that they survived let alone thrived and you know, he became such a success story after a while so thank you for explaining that that's I know you said it's a long answer but very worthwhile long answer
as far as people watching the movie, as I mentioned, I think everybody should see this documentary for everything that we just talked about. As far as how people can watch it, local and independent theaters here in Washington that have been screening The Donut King on their virtual platforms include SIF here in Seattle and the Grand Cinema in Tacoma, and there's some a few others here in the state. If you want to find the movie and then also support one of these local theaters, you can go you know, check their websites to see if they're still offering The Donut King as an option. Otherwise, the Donut King is available on VOD platforms as well as on DVD and Blu-ray. And for more information on all the different ways to watch it, you can go to DonutKingMovie.com. So Alice, is there anything that you wanted to add to that as far as people being able to watch the movie? I think it's been really wonderful here in LA. It's been Lemley Theaters. You know, Lemley's been a big champion of independent film basically forever. Right. So I really love that there are ways for cinephiles across the country to be able to support their local movie theaters who have really been struggling during this entire year. So thank you so much for mentioning you know, locally to Seattle, who they can support. And yes, on demand, we are on iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, YouTube. So there's all kinds of ways to watch. iTunes makes it very easy to gift the film. So a lot of the younger kids who their parents are like, really, do I want to? She's like, okay, I'm going to gift you the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those are, are wonderful ways to watch. So thank you. Absolutely. So Alice, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and I wish you all the best in the coming new year. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me and happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. This is the 206 podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make them. Please subscribe, leave a review and share on social media. Any way you can support the podcast is very much appreciated. You can find podcast episodes and all my movie reviews on 206.com. Thank you for listening to the 206 podcast.